When Bach's eldest son, Wilhelm Friedman, was nine or ten years old, his father made for him a little exercise book or textbook. It had some simple introductory information, a finger pattern or two, a cluster of little pieces for a beginner, and two separate and carefully organized sets of fifteen pieces each, called preambles and fantasies. The first set of fifteen, the preambles, are all in the purest two-part counterpoint, two voices, one in each hand. In the fantasies, however, Bach adds a third voice in between the other two. This extra voice passes backwards and forwards from one hand to the other, creating all kinds of little problems for the fingers and thumbs, and making the fantasies a good deal trickier to play than the preambles. Years after writing the first version of these preambles and fantasies, Bach applied for a teaching job in Leipzig, the sort of job where he might have to use these pieces on a daily basis. So he had another go at them. He reordered them, revised some details, and changed the titles. The two-part preambles became inventions, and the three-part fantasies, symphonies. Symphony in the sense of three parts sounding together. Today, these pieces are usually just called the two-part and the three-part inventions, which is easier, but loses the richness of the titles Bach himself chose. He also, at this same time, gave a rather daunting name to both sets together: Aufrichtiger Anleitung, Upright Instruction, and he wrote a short introductory essay, in which he said that this music was written for lovers of the keyboard. And for those who want to learn, the most obvious and important thing anyone can learn from these pieces is, of course, how to play, or just how to listen, or even how to think in two and then in three separate and equal parts. For Bach, whose famous art of the combination of voices depended, as he put it, on the most hidden secrets of polyphony. This ability to play or listen or think in several voices at once was not only a central skill of music, but one of its central pleasures too. This, after all, is music for lovers of the keyboard. At this point, however, 
It's worth adding that the polyphony we hear in this music, the web of different voices that it makes, is not just a mechanical matter of the bald two or three parts from which each invention or symphony is made. For within each written-down part, there are hidden many further voices, voices within voices. And part of the astonishing fascination of this music comes from the way in which each voice forever lures us into other worlds beyond itself. Take, for example, the very opening two-part invention. What could be simpler? And yet, even here, when you take the right-hand voice on its own, you can hear that this voice contains several different voices, like different characters who answer one another. The first voice begins quite low down. That's answered by another voice with something different to say. The first voice comes back in again, but this time higher up, as though it were chasing the second voice. And then another high voice answers with an echo of the second idea. If you were orchestrating this line of music, you could, if you wanted to, give each of those tiny phrases to a different instrument. A viola to start with, perhaps, then an oboe, then a violin, then a flute, and so on. And that's just one line in the right hand. These voices within voices are an essential part of the way Bach thinks, and especially when he writes in minor keys, he seems to feel an almost overpowering urge to weave in different lamenting voices that call to all the other voices around them. Here, that gentle voice in the middle register is immediately answered by a slightly higher one. And then a higher one again. Imagine that being sung by different women's voices, perhaps. Is it a single line, or three different women folding their contrasted voices in and out of one another? Sometimes this interweaving of several voices takes a more energetic form. 
Here, two voices seem to chase one another downhill. A higher one. And a lower voice. And then there's a third voice coming in at the end. Which sweeps the other two away. So is this D major three-part invention really in three parts, or in many, many more? Every page of these two and three-part inventions abounds in such examples of voices within voices. So, when Bach tells us that these pieces are designed to teach us to play in two voices, and then, after progress, to deal correctly and well with three parts simultaneously, he's not just talking about a purely functional separation and combination of different lines of counterpoint but about the art of discovering the deeper polyphonic life that every individual line contains within itself. Moreover, in his introduction to this work, he also goes on to say that there are four more other things that we will learn from studying and playing and indeed from listening to these two- and three-part inventions. What we will learn is, first of all, to have good inventiones. Second, to develop those inventiones well. Third, to arrive at a singing style in playing. And last, to acquire a strong taste for composition. When he talks about good inventiones, Bach wasn't just talking about the pieces. He was referring to the ideas within them, their starting points, the tunes, the images from which they're made, which, for him, were inventions in the sense of being discoveries, things that he's found. Bach's point is that in good music, this little idea, this invention, will be good. I suspect that what he meant by that was strong, striking, memorable, and filled with musical possibilities for the rest of the piece. Certainly, the very first thing every music lover who approaches these pieces will notice is the sheer variety of these little ideas. Some of the simplest of them, as often happens in Baroque and classical music, are just based on chords.
Here, the right hand begins by just running up and down one chord. And a moment later, the left hand answers with another such chord. That was just two parts, but you can find a very similar idea in this three-part invention. The top voice begins with nothing more than a four-note broken chord, which in turn is answered by the middle voice, and then by the lowest voice. What's so strong about this? So good and clean. To use Bach's words, is the way this idea, which in another composer's hands might have been quite nondescript, comes singing out of a complex texture of different voices. Our ears are immediately captured by this invention. One of the most familiar tricks, not just of Bach but of his whole period, is to take a simple chord, an arpeggio or a broken chord like that, and then fill in the gaps in between the spaced notes of the chord, but always in such a way that however many notes are filling in, the ear still hears the chord behind the music. There's an excellent demonstration of this in one of the two-part inventions. Remember, this was music for teaching. And Bach takes his young son and us through the whole thought process in a couple of seconds. The structure is a kind of trumpet call. But Bach fills in the second half of the trumpet call with all the little notes in between. It's like joining the dots in a child's drawing game. Sometimes Bach only joins up a few of the dots, but in such a way as to make things sound quite elaborate. The left hand is absolutely clear, but the right hand, underneath its twiddles, is really just as clear. So far, we've been looking at inventions or themes based on chords, but there are lots of other kinds, like those based on scales, for example, and especially scales with a little chromatic twist in them to make them slither or slide. Bach finds many ways to use this kind of chromaticism.
Here, the slither, or the hook as pop musicians would call it, comes only in the first four notes. That's the only chromatic bit in the whole scale, but in an odd way, it seems to give a chromatic coloration to all the rest of the notes. The only thing Bach needed here to make this effect was a tiny touch, like the faintest hint of salt added to a beautifully cooked dish. Because we hear the two voices together, this chromatic coloration even affects the rising scale in the left hand, which in itself isn't chromatic at all. The identity, the strength and clarity of this particular invention seems to come immediately from that tiny chromatic hook at the beginning. But it also, of course, depends on the fact that there are two scales here, one going down and the other going up, and they fit together perfectly. And what establishes that perfection in our minds is not just the sheer beauty of the sound, but the way the idea is immediately repeated with the voices swapped. What had been in the left hand is now in the right hand, and vice versa. It's such a simple trick, a simple repetition. And yet, because the two voices are swapped, what had been below is now above, and so on, the ear is dazzled. For a moment, you actually think you're onto a new idea, until you realize it's just the same one you heard immediately before. But perhaps the most distinctive feature of Bach's counterpoint, to us who live 300 years later, is when he makes a ceaseless trickle of running notes, rushing semiquavers, like water pouring over stones. Babbling semiquavers at the beginning there include leaps or switchbacks. The scale rushes up, leaps down to the bottom, then rushes back down again from the top. That single note that he leapt down to in the middle, he could have left up at the top without any leaping, but if he'd done that, it wouldn't have sounded like Bach at all. In his introduction to these two cycles of inventions, Bach tells us that we will learn from this music not only to have good inventiones, but to develop the same well. 
What does he mean by this word, develop? We'll take this sonorous two-part invention as an example. The inventio, the discovery, is this. And I suppose you could say that Bach develops that idea into what immediately follows. Except that what follows is not a development in the Brahmsian sense of the word. The logic of the music doesn't just continue what's come before. Instead, after a half repetition of the opening idea, that sort of fanfare, Bach blows the whole thing away in a delightful scatter of twinkling semiquavers. And Bach doesn't try to extend that or draw it out. Instead, he makes exactly the same thing happen in the left hand, an octave lower. And when he puts the two hands together, we get a cannon. And that in turn is followed by something which at first hearing is quite similar. But this time, the left hand, although it still imitates the right hand, sets off on a journey of its own. The result is no longer a cannon. The two voices have separated and set off in different directions. It seems to me that what Bach meant by development is actually a play between two quite different things. One is the way the opening idea, the inventio, constantly reappears in different guises and different places all over the keyboard, high, low, middle, and so on. But the other is the way in which the inventio sometimes disappears completely to leave us with other passages made of a quite different kind of music, those bubbling semiquavers. Viewed like this, the invencio is always in some way fixed. It jolts our memory and we recognize it every time it comes back, even when it sounds different. The bubbling semiquavers, on the other hand, are fluid. They just keep bubbling along in all sorts of different directions and we don't recognize them as a fixed idea, but more as a kind of general fluidity, a chance to relax even, 
and a kind of opposition to the main idea. I once heard a friend illustrate this quite simply by taking apart one of the greatest of all these thirty pieces, the three-part invention or symphony in F minor. It actually begins in just two parts. In the bass, that chromatic line we heard earlier in the program. Above that, there's a more melodic line with little pauses in it, which give a kind of gasping quality. Together, the two lines seem almost innocent. What immediately follows is that this same music moves up into a new position. It doesn't really change; it just sounds different. But that's because we're hearing it in a new way. There's that same chromatic line. And the same gasping melody still above it. The real difference is that this time there's a new, more disturbing, and detailed third melody underneath. Combined, these three voices sound like this. Then there's a break of a couple of bars, a contrast, while Bach makes something else happen, and then the three voices come back in as before, except this time the chromatic voices on top. The new third voice is in the middle, and the gasping melody is underneath. Once again, nothing's really changed except for the position of each voice in relation to the others. Then there's another break for something different. And then the three voices come back in for the fourth time, rearranged again. This time, the chromatic voice is underneath, and the gasping melody is in the middle. And this time, that leads straight into another version of the same idea in yet another configuration. With the chromatic voice moved up again, and on Bach goes.
In all, this piece contains ten of these almost bald restatements of the opening idea, the inventio, and each time he changes the position of the inventio in the harmony, and he moves each voice around in relation to the other two, so it's never the same voice on top or in the middle or wherever. Until eventually, with the tenth statement of the same idea, he arrives back at something that's actually very like the opening, but, and here's the mystery, it sounds completely transformed. This inventio is the music that's fixed, the fluid music the contrast to it are those little breaks I mentioned in between. There are five of them, and they too are carefully calculated. The first one's only in two parts, and it's a real little breath of fresh air. The second break's more complicated and it has little echoes of the inventio, just enough to confuse the ear as to whether the main idea is still going on or not. Later in the piece, this second break reappears as the fourth break, but this time extended and with its three parts shuffled. which plays with memories of the gasping theme. is reshuffled as the fifth break, so that it sounds like quite different music. X-ray this great F minor invention, you find that it consists of one small idea in three voices reshuffled and played ten times. And these ten statements of the same music are from time to time interrupted by other music, five times in all. And this other music itself is reshuffled and restated. The astonishing art and artifice of what Bach achieves in this music can be looked at and listened to in many different ways. But one thing is sure. When Bach speaks of the inventio being developed, what he means is not spun out or varied or transformed into something else, but rather a quite different process of ever greater and greater concentration on the essence of the idea, 
in such a way that all its possible meanings and beautiful qualities are revealed. At the same time, and this is perhaps even more amazing, all this is done so that even when we know or have worked out exactly what it is that Bach is doing, we still have the feeling that the music is flowing in a single breath. you can see that the music is constructed out of tiny segments, like a mosaic. You don't hear it like that. Instead, its overwhelming quality is its long line, what Debussy called its divine arabesque. 
It was perhaps this side of his music that Bach had in mind when, in his introduction, he spoke of all these pieces, teaching the apprentice musician, as he put it, to arrive at a singing style in playing. But he also said that there was one more thing we could learn from this music, what he called a strong foretaste for composition. I love that phrase, and what I've always assumed he meant was that if we played and listened to these inventions enough, it's not that we'd want to imitate them, that'd be impossible, but we'd be so excited by the play and skill and beauty and thrill of how they're made that we'd be inspired to find our own ways of creating similar experiences. And here's where form comes in. The more I live with these pieces, the more I'm staggered by the wholeness of their form. If you go back and take the first of the two-part inventions, for example, you find that it divides amazingly neatly into three parts, and each of those three parts in turn divides into three. A beginning, a middle, And an end. That's the first third of the piece. The second third works in a similar way, with a beginning, and an ending. And the last third of the piece also works in almost the same way, with a beginning And finally, the ending of the whole piece. It's like those famous Russian dolls. Each structure nests inside other structures. How fascinating is this word, invention? It means so many things anyway, and it means so many particular things here in these two wonderful cycles of preambles and fantasies, or inventions and symphonies. It means the inventio, the little idea, the discovery from which the whole piece grows. And then it means what Bach called the development of that inventio, the way the initial idea sets out upon a journey. We asked our pianist to play this particular piece, the C major three-part invention, 
exactly in time, but leaving out all the other music, only playing the Invencio in all its different appearances, so you could hear exactly how Bach plays with just one idea. Of course, the invention beyond that is the whole piece, the preamble, the fantasy or symphony, and then still further beyond that, it's the whole cycle, and then of course it's the two cycles taken together. Invention itself is a wonderful word for the way in which, at every moment, Bach's mind was able to move freely between the smallest detail and the widest view of everything he heard and saw. But these inventions are inventions in another sense as well, for taken together, they're about the invention of the whole musician, the discovery and awakening in anyone of a love of music, and of the joy of playing, however badly, and of listening. And as we listen, it's worth remembering that Bach's little son Wilhelm Friedmann, for whom he originally wrote these pieces, himself became a great composer. And we know that many others of Bach's pupils began their work with him in Leipzig by studying these pieces with the man who'd written them. Bach's final hope in his introduction, scribbled on his manuscript, was that studying and playing these pieces would lead someone into acquiring a strong taste for composition. And with that in mind, it's good to learn that when Beethoven died, a copy of these inventions was found among his personal possessions. Mm -hmm. 